Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shape the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk to Richard Bush. Few people alive today have had the congressional, executive branch, intelligence service, and academic experience of Richard Bush in dealing with the most challenging issue in U.S.-China relations, the one that could lead to armed conflict. Here, I'm talking about Taiwan. At the end of the Chinese Civil War in 1949, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist forces left the mainland and retreated to the island of Taiwan. At the outbreak of the Korean War a year later, the U.S. sent warships into the Taiwan Strait and bolstered military ties with Taiwan. Chiang Kai-shek and his son ruled Taiwan as a single-party Leninist state through their leadership of the Nationalist Party, known as the Kuomintang, or KMT. That police state began to unravel after 1984, when an assassin killed Taiwan dissident Henry Liu in Daly City, California. Diane Sawyer did a full piece on 60 Minutes about the murder. Shock waves halfway around the world, from Washington to Taiwan. The murdered man was a 51-year-old American of Chinese descent named Henry Liu, a journalist, a constant critic of the government on Taiwan, the author of a critical biography of its president. But there are signs that Henry Liu was also a man playing with fire. The date was October the 15th, 1984. As Henry Liu walked to his garage, the gunmen were lying in wait. They opened fire. Henry Liu was shot at close range three times, twice in the abdomen, once between the eyes. In response to U.S. outrage over the execution, Chang's son, Zhang Jingguo, began to relax political restrictions and open up space for public discourse and civil society on Taiwan. Eventually, the ruling KMT lost power to the opposition Democratic Progressive Party in a watershed election in March 2000. But while politics on Taiwan evolved, the Chinese Communist Party remained firmly in control in Beijing and continues to claim Taiwan as a rightful part of China. In his conversation with me, Richard Bush explains his role in the democratization process on Taiwan. He then unpacks the key elements of U.S. policy towards the People's Republic of China and Taiwan since 1979, including military ties and areas of contention between Washington and Beijing. For anyone wanting to understand this intricate history and a potential flashpoint in U.S.-China relations, Richard Bush's experience and insights are simply unmatched. Thank you, Richard Bush, for talking today. Uh, you've had a long career in the Congress, in the academia and think tank world, and in the intelligence community. I want to start uh, with your biography particularly as someone who graduated college in the late 1960s and then went to graduate school to study Asia, I guess I would ask, what prompted that given broader global events? Um, it was personal history. My parents uh, were missionaries in Asia, and during my high school years, we lived in Hong Kong. Uh, I learned uh, absolutely nothing about China at the British middle school that I attended. Um, but the experience of living in a Chinese society for five years without a break uh, left a lasting impression. And not too long after I began college, I decided I wanted to do China professionally. And I'm still doing it, and I feel very fortunate. Well, wow, that's an amazing story. So did you grow up uh, at the school in Hong Kong? Did they teach Cantonese or Mandarin or no, no Chinese language at all? No, the, this school uh, was a British school. There was no international school. The curriculum was very much supportive of uh, UK students who were there and were looking to go back to um, the UK for university. Uh, and so the emphasis was on um, British history, British geography, British literature. Um, for languages, we learned French and Latin. Um, the Chinese society outside the walls of the school might has w have well not existed. Wow, fascinating. So you didn't go on to French, you went on to continue to, to study Chinese, uh, for which we're all very, very grateful that you've spent your career on this Thanks. incredibly important part of the world. Um, so you go to graduate school, um, you write your dissertation on um, kind of KMT economic policy in one particular part of it, 
and then you come out and you start to work at the Asia Society yes. on working with China. What was it like in the pre kind of normalization phase to kind of think about dealing with China or traveling to China? Did you go to Hong Kong and to Taipei? Was that mostly if you could travel where people went? Uh, my first trip to China actually occurred while I was at the Asia Society. It was 1978. Um, I was uh, the sort of so-called scholar on uh, a commercial tour group of about 50 Americans, um, mainly older, um, who really wanted to go to China before they hung up their traveling shoes. And uh, it was um, early days in China tourism, um, but it was fun. And uh, um, I saw things as they were starting to change. Um, this was when the debates were going on within the Communist Party about the fundamentals of future policy. Uh, I happened to be in Beijing uh, at the time that Zbig Brzezinski and Mike Oxenberg um, were there. Um, wow. And uh, uh, viewed that trip as uh, ordinary Chinese do by going to the uh, bulletin board where People's Daily is uh, posted and reading it for clues. Mm -hmm. And I made a guess that uh, normalization was coming. So at that time, uh, reading newspapers on the street, mm -hmm. certainly uh, etched in your memory, were there other things that you recollect? Lots of bicycles, gray clothes. Um, are, are there other times, are there other periods from that time that really stick out at you is how much has changed between Beijing today and, and China at that time? Beijing at that time and other parts of China, um, I think we're still trapped in the aftermath of the Cultural Revolution. Um, it was all sort of very gray and very poor and undeveloped. Um, the next time I went to China, again with a, a group, was um, in 1979, and already the change was occurring. People were wearing more colorful clothes. Uh, there was a little bit more sense of optimism uh, about the future. Um, and I'm impressed uh, today at how far China came uh, in a relatively short period of time, and also in the context of the disaster that the Cultural Revolution was for China. Um, it's a, it's a, a tribute to the leaders like Deng Xiaoping, who um, sort of addressed that disaster head-on and did something about it. And what was interaction like with normal Chinese or government-minders at that time? Pretty limited. Uh, the government-minders, I think, were um, eager for information about the outside world, um, eager to know what was going to happen in U.S.-China relations, uh, willing in private conversations to um, offer their own observations about their own political system. I remember one guide in 1981 who um, observed that the American people had um, elected Ronald Reagan and the Chinese people hadn't elected Deng Xiaoping. Before moving on to your work in, sure. in the Congress, I just want to ask, uh, as a son of missionary parents, do you feel like you were parents' religious beliefs influenced at all the way that you interacted with China or the rest of East Asia or your career path? Did that have any kind of influence or they could have been working for GE, it just happened that they were working for a church? My parents were kind of a special case. My father had uh, gotten a PhD in comparative religions and uh, he never really did evangelical work. Mm -hmm. um, he um, really believed that uh, Westerners should treat uh, foreign religions, including Chinese religions, on their own terms and start from the premise that uh, each re religion is actually addressing the same set of problems. They may come to different answers, um, they may not, um, but uh, the proper stance was engagement. Uh, it wasn't to denigrate other religions or to say that this is not a genuine expression of faith. Well, um, and um, so you know that's a good perspective, I think. Well, so after your uh, 
work as a tour guide and kind of mm -hmm. uh, uh, concierge for visitors to China, uh, you started working in the house. Um, tell me how that kind of opportunity came up and uh, then when you first started working, what, what were you working on? Um, it happened um, at a Christmas party, I think. Uh, a friend who was working on the staff of the house Asia subcommittee happened to mention that the China person was leaving and why didn't I apply? Um, I wasn't sure that that was the right institutional environment for me at first, but I decided to go ahead and apply and um, everything worked out. Uh, my uh, responsibilities were China, Taiwan, uh, Indochina. I later took on Japan and Latin America. Um, well, a lot of different things, um, none of them in terribly great depth. The Taiwan part was uh, particularly interesting because uh, the congressman I worked for, the late Steve Solars, uh, took as one of his objectives promoting democracy and human rights in Taiwan. And uh, so my job was to help him do that. And we did it through hearings, through speeches, through travel to Taiwan, through welcoming um, Taiwan opposition leaders um, to the Congress, um, all of that. Um, I think that people like Solars uh, did make a contribution uh, to uh, at least the timing of democratization. Um, one of the things that Steve did was to make the case that a democratic Taiwan would have a greater claim on the support of the American people and the American government than um, one that was still authoritarian. We had chatted a little bit earlier about uh, one particular time in Taiwan democratization and uh, the role that you all played in that. Um, and you had mentioned uh, uh, one specific incident. Mm -hmm. um, I, I found it fascinating. Would you mind kind of retelling what happened and the, the role that you all played? Sure. The context was that um, the political situation in Taiwan was uh, in a gridlock. Um, President Zhang Jinghua apparently wanted to move towards democracy, but um, he was not in the best of health, and uh, the security services had a fairly powerful position in his government, making the argument that we can't trust these um, radical Taiwan independence people um, by opening up the political system and China's still there and it's hostile, et cetera. And this is what, what time frame? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, 1983, 1984. Um, there were um, reformers um, in the uh, uh, Taiwan government who uh, supported the idea of democratization, but they couldn't make headway. Then in, um, I think it was October, November 1984, um, one of the security services sent some gangsters um, to Daly City, California to murder a gentleman named Henry Liu, who was um, at least a permanent resident, if not an American citizen. Didn't, didn't matter what he was in, in those terms. Um, Henry Liu um, got on the bad side of uh, some people in Taiwan because he was uh, publishing material that was critical of, of Kuomintang leaders. Um, so he was killed. Nobody knew at first that this was a, a Taiwan government hit job. At a certain point, um, listeners at the National Security Agency picked up conversations between security services in Taiwan and um, these guys and figured out that this was a government-inspired hit. Um, at that point, it became very serious. Um, you know, it's one thing to kill people in your own country. It's another to uh, um, kill people in the United States who have uh, certain constitutional protections. Um, uh, fairly soon, um, uh, people from the State Department uh, called Congressman Solars because they knew his, of his interest in Taiwan and knew of an amendment that he had passed that would limit U.S. arms sales to Taiwan if there were a a consistent pattern of uh, intimidation and harassment of people here in the United States by um, any government. Wow, so he put that into the 
legislative powers that Taiwan officials had to be on notice about yes. their behavior yes. or their access to U.S. weapons would That's be right. would be affected. Well, and uh, that was a provision in the Arms Export Control Act. Um, so uh, we were in Central America traveling around at the time we got the phone call, and uh, um, as soon as I got back, I started planning a hearing um, to make a big issue of this, oh. and we did make a big issue of this. And Taiwan had a number of uh, supporters in the Congress, but this was not something that they could defend. So who did you have at the hearing? What sorts of people would come and talk for a hearing uh, about well, this? Well, first of all, we had um, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State responsible for China and Taiwan, William Brown. Mm -hmm. um, and he probably revealed at that hearing more than he intended to when he came in, but it was very illuminating. Um, then we had the widow of Henry Leo wow. come and testify. It was real political theater. I forget who else we had, but that was enough. Um, and we then proceeded to um, um, uh, file a resolution that condemned this killing, and et cetera, et cetera. And that did pass the House of Representatives. It was... Um, you know, the only resolution of this kind that did pass. But, you know, killing people on American soil is not something that can be defended. Um, and I think that case and the American response to it helped break open the logjam in Taipei. And um, because the security services were involved, uh, Jingguo realized that he had to restrain them. He gave... Um, um, sort of um, marching orders to some of his more liberal officials to um, start preparing for democratization. Uh, there came a point September 28, 1986. Um, leaders of the opposition in Taiwan gathered at the Grand Hotel and announced the formation of the Democratic Progressive Party. Um, and um, that was illegal at the time. Um, we were afraid that he, that the government would wrap these people up, and I um, engineered a letter from the, the four members of Congress who were most pro-democratization and human rights um, uh, so that it could be released quickly, um, urging President Zhang not to do anything about this, and he didn't. He probably didn't intend to anyway. Um, about a week later, he had an interview with Catherine Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post, and announced that he was going to lift martial law, sort of emergency rule. Right. Just stepping back a little bit on Taiwan history. Yeah. So martial law was in place? Since the late 1940s. And what it essentially meant was that um, political um, dissent would be treated as a crime tried by military courts. So, very big policy step to yes, lift that that's right. martial order line. And he so that was done in July of 1987, the next year. And the, the process of democratization um, continued um, step by step after that. It was accelerated when um, Li Donghui became president on the death of President Zhang in uh, January 1988. So do you think, looking back, I mean, Certainly members of Congress had an important role to play in this. Uh, do you think uh, Zhang Jingguo, given who he was as the kind of son of Chiang Kai-shek, was in a unique position to kind of deliver that political openness that another official might not have been able to do or another leader might not have been able to do? Um, I think it was really fortunate for Taiwan that he was still living um, in the 1980s and had enough strength and energy uh, to begin this process and put his stamp on it. Um, Zhang Jingguo, uh, in his early days in Taiwan, had a reputation as a thug. Um, he was in charge of the security services, but he also had a populist image, too. Uh, he would go out among the people and ask, you know, how you doing? Um, a much more approachable um, than his father was, who was always very reserved and removed. <clears throat> and so I don't think it was an accident that he decided later in life that opening up the political system was uh, a good thing to do. Um, 
And I think he also bought the argument that if Taiwan was to continue to have the support of the United States, there had to be a values basis for that. And it couldn't just be anti-communism because China was changing. Maybe it wouldn't be communist anymore. And so um, pushing forward Taiwan's uh, political development was a way of keeping Taiwan ahead of China. Interesting. Well, I want to get to Li Donghui and his visit mm-hmm. here, uh, but there is, um, in U.S.-China relations in uh, 1989, something yes. that happened that was rather mm-hmm. rather big. And so uh, leading up to the um, protests in Tiananmen Square, uh, there was a lot of interest in the Congress about what was happening in China mm-hmm. and about what, the fate of the students. Um, you, at the time, were working for Representative Solars. Could you talk a little bit about what sorts of information you all had and the level of interest in, in the members of Congress and what was happening in Tiananmen, both during the protests and then the, the crackdown as well? Um, the main information was um, what we um, saw in the media, newspapers and TV, which had uh, at that time uh, more access to what was going on in China. Um, we also, I'm sure, sought intelligence briefings about what uh, our intelligence agencies knew of what was going on on the ground. Um, we had hearings, um, as I recall, that uh, sought information from various experts, including um, um, Pei Min Chin, who uh, at that time was um, a student at Harvard and had a lot of contacts with um, the students back in Beijing. Well, and he's now, just so that we're, yes. he's now a very well-respected scholar yes. of China. Mm-hmm. Yes. So hearings, um, some intelligence briefings, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, CNN, which was just at that time taking yes. off as, yes. a, as a source of information. And what was the, what was the mood like on Capitol Hill? Was there excitement, concern? Was this uh, an area of not such large focus because what was happening in the Soviet Union was also kind of quite large in terms of U.S. foreign policy? Well, that spring, uh, I think China was the focus. And um, um, people's sensitivity that something was going on had already been heightened uh, in March of that year when um, there were protests in Tibet and they were harshly cracked down upon. Um, But, you know, the the mere fact that uh, Chinese people were coming out, uh, not just in Beijing, but all over China, and um, criticizing corruption, uh, seeking an opening of the political system, um, this was very exciting. And this was not something that people necessarily expected, um, but it was um, rather moving to watch, particularly in the final days. Uh, There was also a deep concern uh, that the regime would not allow this to continue and that at some point it would um, bring it to heel. Uh, there was disagreement in Washington at the time over whether violence would be used. Um, when violence came, it was a great shock. Um, uh, you had mentioned before, shock to some in yes. some ways but less to others. What, what do you mean by that? What, how does that? How do you recall that happening? Um, th- the members of Congress who were least surprised that the Chinese Communist government used violence to end these protests were conservative Republicans because this revealed what they thought to be the true face of this regime. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the people who were most disturbed by it were um, liberal Democrats because they with some justification, had the impression that this was a system that was changing in a good direction. It was changing gradually, um, at least up until that time. Um, I think there was um, a belief that um, communist systems don't change quickly, and gradual change is all one can hope for. That presumption changed after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, but um, the reversal of this positive trend in China, uh, I think, was very disappointing to people. Well, and so then the PLA is sent in to Tiananmen Square the night of June 3rd, June 4th. Um, students are rounded up. Others are sought after. Mm-hmm. 
what was the response here in Washington, but specifically in the Congress, to those actions of the of the PLA and the Chinese leadership? Um, deep outrage uh, and a belief that we had to do something. Um, so there was immediate um, pressure to consider legislation uh, that would in some way punish China. Uh, there was criticism of the George Herbert Walker Bush administration for being too soft. You know, the, the Bush administration had to think about all the different equities that we had with China and um, uh, understandably did not want to have the relationship defined by one set of issues. Um, when you say all of those different issues, um, what sorts of things are you thinking of? Well, the economic relationship was very important, uh, sort of access to the Chinese economy, um, benefiting from um, the trade relationship. Uh, there were um, intelligence relationships. Uh, we um, worked with the Chinese to get um, information on Soviet missile tests. We collaborated with the Chinese in supporting uh, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Um, um, there was, at that time, a hope that the United States and China and others could work together to deal with the situation in Cambodia, um, which um, was in a situation of deep uncertainty because the Vietnamese had withdrawn. Uh, and in fact, China and the United States and Russia and others did work well together to bring about a peace accord. Um, so, uh, you know, for those who saw the big picture, um, there was a lot in that picture. Um, the Bush administration did impose some sanctions. Um, there was uh, still a belief in the Congress that it Congress needed to do its own sanctions, and um, we went ahead and did that. Uh, there was an effort to try and um, limit the scope of those so that it didn't affect the whole relationship, uh, including the trade relationship. Um, and, but the idea that there should be some kind of sanctions um, uh, continued through the next several years. Um, the, the ones that were done in 1989-1990 were the only ones that were actually passed and put into law, but um, um, some people in the Congress wanted to do more. And when you say some people, uh, the name that comes to mind most is the person I associate most with uh, this time in U.S.-China relations and in a series of many years of U.S.-China relations is Nancy Pelosi. Yes. Um, could you talk just a little bit about how that kind of intra-democratic capital D kind of party discussion went and where you got, where the Congress ended up and, and how that happened? Um, Nancy Pelosi represents a district in San Francisco and um, there were a lot of Chinese students in her district and, and so many of them sought her help and she uh, made China her issue. Um, the split in the Congress really wasn't between Democrats and Republicans, it was within each party. And so more moderate people um, in each party um, had a common viewpoint and it was more um, uh, people on the, the wings of each party, liberal Democrats and conservative Republicans that um, chose to work together. Um, Mrs. Pelosi tried um, on two or three occasions, uh, along with supporters in the Senate, to pass legislation that would condition um, China's tariff treatment um, on its human rights record, on things like intellectual property, and on um, uh, proliferation. Uh, and um, she was never able to pass legislation. Well, there were a couple of times when uh, a bill was sent to um, President Bush, he vetoed it, uh, and then it came back to the Congress uh, for an override. Um, and the question was always in the Senate, and the Senate never voted to um, override the President's veto. The, the economic sanctions, uh, tariffs and whatnot, was uh, uh, done through other legislation. 
uh, and it was kind of part of the 1992 presidential campaign um, right. as well, putting President Bush on the spot. Right. So speaking of campaigning, uh, maybe we should return back to Lee Dong-hui yes. and his, uh, his visit here uh, and the aftermath of it. Um, could you just talk a little bit about Lee Dong-hui and who he was and then why he wanted to come here and why that ended up being a, a problem for U.S.-Taiwan and then U.S.-PRC, U.S.-Chinese relations? Sure. Uh, Lee Dong-hui was uh, born in 1923. Uh, he was um, the child of, of uh, people who had, whose family had been in Taiwan for a long time, so he was called a Taiwanese. Jiang Jingguo picked him to be a, his vice presidential candidate in 1984, which was a real signal of the political change that was occurring, transfer of power from mainlanders to Taiwanese. Um, he became president in January 1988, uh, and he adopted as one of his objectives continuing the process of democratization. And I think he understood that this was important as relations with China were improving, at least on the economic front, um, because it was important to give the Taiwan public a seat at any negotiating table that sort of emerged between the governments of the two places. So he felt that as uh, the leader of a party like the KMP, that really wasn't enough authority to be dealing with mainland China, that yes. the people of Taiwan That's should right. have some voice at the table. And, uh, you know, he could always say, um, you know, my people won't support your proposal. How do you expect me to get it passed? Uh, you have to do something that's uh, saleable within the Taiwan political context. Um, Li Dong-hui very skillfully uh, moved forward on democratization by working with more moderate uh, elements in the Democratic Progressive Party, the opposition, uh, the sort of the harshest conservatives in his own party were sidelined, the more radical people in the DPP were sidelined, and so the whole thing was pushed through and the process was deemed to have been completed by 1996 with the first direct presidential election. Um, and sorry, the leading up points were certain things that had been appointed before became elected positions? Yes. Um, the um, uh, president had previously been picked by a National Assembly, which was just uh, filled with KMT holdovers, and so really didn't reflect the popular will. Uh, one of the things that he um, felt was important, um, both in terms of Taiwan's interests but also in terms of domestic politics, was um, reinserting Taiwan in the world. Taiwan had been rather isolated and marginalized because of Chinese policy. And so he started what was called travel diplomacy. Uh, he went uh, to play golf at uh, a couple of Southeast Asian countries. And he got the idea that uh, he wanted to visit the United States. Uh, he had gotten his um, PhD from Cornell University. And he wanted, as an alumnus, to go give a speech. Um, this was problematic. Um, for um, the United States because um, at the time we, that we normalized relations with the People's Republic of China, we had said that our relationship with Taiwan would be unofficial. And so how did that manifest itself, that kind of unofficial relationship? Um, the previous Republic of China embassy in Washington was closed down and an organization called the Coordination Council for North American Affairs uh, was set up, and it was a, um, a, a de facto embassy um, doing all the duties of an embassy. Similarly, um, the Congress uh, created the American Institute in Taiwan, which was a nominally private organization, um, really a wholly owned subsidiary of the U.S. government, and um, which conducted um, U.S. policy and programs in and with Taiwan. Um, and this fiction um, allowed uh, Beijing to um, believe that, um, um, you know, we obviously didn't have diplomatic relations with Taiwan um, and 
Um, so Taiwan had been um, sort of reduced uh, in political status um, from them or f and from where they had been before. Um, the details of our One China policy, including um, the idea that our relations with Taiwan would be unofficial, um, wasn't really spelled out in any agreement with them. We reserved the right to define it for ourselves. Uh, but you mean how we would conduct these yes, unofficial relations? Yes. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Um, but there was, a, I think, a general belief at the time that for the president of Taiwan to come to the United States for um, uh, public events um, was getting close to the officiality line. Um, senior Taiwan leaders had quietly passed through the United States um, on their way to other places, transiting, and we define this as okay. Mm -hmm. But uh, and just to, for the geography part, why would a Taiwan leader have to come to the United States at all? Why couldn't they transit somewhere else? Um, many of Taiwan's diplomatic partners uh, were in Central and South America uh, or the Caribbean, and uh, there isn't really any other place that you could transit through uh, to those places. And um, it, for the United States, it was useful uh, to have these transits because it was a way for whoever was sort of supervising the transit to um, um, meet with uh, their senior officials and um, sort of check signals on um, policy issues of the day. Um, but a, a true visit, um, you know, for the de deliberate purpose of coming to the United States, uh, that was a bridge too far. Um, the State Department resisted it. Lee Dong-wei really wanted it. Uh, he hired a lobbying firm uh, to help him get it. And this lobbying firm mounted the most aggressive campaign in Congress that I'd ever seen up till that point. Wow. Um, and um, so uh, the, the denouement was um, in May of um, 1995. The House of Representatives passed by almost uh, unanimous margin a resolution urging the Clinton administration to um, let Lee Dong-hui have his visit. Um, and on the lobbying side, what was the point that the lobbyists made? I mean, members of Congress must have been compelled by something other than a very convincing lobbyist. What, what, what was it, do you think, that members of Congress thought of that they were supporting when they were supporting uh, a Lee Dong-hui visit to the United States? Um, I think it was mainly um, s sort of in the area of values and the comparison between Taiwan and uh, China. Taiwan was democratic. It was everything we wanted it to be. Uh, China was still coming out of the um, sort of Tiananmen era. Uh, everything a democracy wasn't. Um, and so this was a, a way uh, at a time of our sort of unipolar hegemony to make a statement about uh, what America stood for. And that was probably the logic. Mm -hmm. The Up until then, the view of the State Department as expressed to the Chinese was that this was not uh, consistent with our policy, but President Clinton redefined uh, what policy was. Um, and uh, China responded very badly. Um, they cut off some uh, unofficial contacts that had developed with Taiwan. Um, they refused to um, grant agreement for um, Jim Sasser, whom the Clinton administration had put up for ambassador to China. Um, a lot of elements of our relationship um, were put on hold. You had and mentioned to me before, speaking of the Chinese reaction, that you had had a conversation with Yang Jiechir yes. about this. Um, I don't want to interrupt the flow, but I wonder yes. if you could just kind of uh, explain what the view was or how you talked about it to a senior Chinese diplomat. Um, this was a conversation about February 1995, um, you know, three months before the resolution was passed. And... Um, 
Mr. Yang, who then was the deputy chief of mission at the Chinese embassy, was you know, seeking my analysis of what was going to happen. Um, and would the Congress go ahead and in some way force President Clinton's hand uh, and uh, so that Li Donghui would um, be allowed to come on what the Chinese at, at least thought was uh, the opposite of an unofficial relationship. And I offered Mr. Yang my view that um, based on the political dynamics I observed um, in the House of Representatives and the head of steam that was being mounted behind this idea, I really doubted that it was going to be possible to stop this visit, that Congress was going to go ahead full steam. Um, there was nobody opposing it, and uh, therefore China had to consider the possibility that it would happen. That Congress would pass a resolution and then the White House would be under political pressure to grant a visa for Li Donghui to visit his alma mater. Yes, and or um, if President Clinton um, ignored the um, suggestion that the resolution offered, uh, it would pass legislation, uh, binding legislation, to require um, the executive branch to issue a visa. Wow. Um, and so that... Um, and what was his reaction? How did, what, would that, what do you recall about his... I, I don't remember his reaction. I'm sure he wasn't happy, but um, that I felt that it was my obligation to give him an honest assessment of, of where things were. The, the problem with this... Um, one of the problems with this visit was that although we were very happy that Taiwan was now a democracy, we developed concerns about some of the policies that the democratically elected leader came up with um, and that um, his desire to come to the United States uh, conflicted with our definition of the one China policy and with our larger equities in U.S.-China relations. Um, and added to that was the fact that um, there wasn't a whole lot of consultation on this. Um, between the U.S. and, and the PRC? Uh, between the United States and Taiwan. Mm -hmm, I mean, I Taiwan just wanted to do it, and uh, um, they didn't want to hear no. Mm -hmm. um, and they were using political leverage to get what they wanted. I mean, there were Taiwan officials who were opposed to this, but uh, Li Dengwei was the president, and he was going to go ahead. Um, and um, so... It, it led to um, a bit of soul-searching on our part about how we manage the politics of, uh, of cross-strait relations, or the Taiwan politics of cross-strait relations, um, while uh, sort of conducting what we hoped would be a cooperative relationship with China, that if um, there if Li Dengwei wanted to come to the United States, it was going to be harder to um, engage in those cooperative areas. So Li Dengwei comes here. Yes. He speaks to his alma mater. Then what happens? Um, China, uh, as I've said before, um, suspends parts of the U.S.-China relationship. It suspends parts of the China-Taiwan relationship. Um, it uh, begins... Um, military exercises that um, obviously have Taiwan in mind. Um, you know, there was never any danger that um, China was going to go to war, but it uh, did want to engage in um, coercive diplomacy, making shows of force to have a political impact uh, in Taiwan. And so there were several during the latter half of 1995, and then uh, in um, early 1996, um, uh, there were more, and they were more focused. Um, this was in the run-up to the Taiwan presidential elections in March of 1996, where Li Dengwei was running for re-election. 
the most uh, provocative and serious thing was a uh, um, couple of mix missile exercises where missiles were being launched into um, areas um, off the coast of Taiwan. Uh, again, not at Taiwan, but um, in a threatening way. Um, and this created a great deal of consternation in the United States and concern in the uh, Clinton administration that somehow this situation could spin out of control. And what do you think the PRC leaders were thinking about when they selected uh, target zones outside the main ports of Taiwan to, to lob missiles? I think their belief was we need to show Taiwan that um, we can close off their economic lifelines and that to some degree we can impose an embargo, drive up shipping rates and so on. Uh, at the time of these missile tests, um, there was an effect in Taiwan. Um, the Taiwan stock market crashed. The value of the new Taiwan dollar against the U.S. dollar plummeted. Um, there were long lines outside the American Institute in Taiwan uh, seeking visas to the United States. Uh, and uh, so, you know, their shows of force did have an impact. It did not change the results of the election, though. And if their intention was to try to reduce Li Dengwei's vote total, it probably had the counter result. Um, th these shows of force also caused a lot of concern in the East Asian region. And this was not the China that they were used to. Um, one of these missiles flew fairly close to the southernmost island of Japan. Uh, and um, so it became a problem for Japan as well. And so at that moment in your career, you had you were just getting ready to move, or you moved depending on which exact year or month we're talking about, to become the National Intelligence Officer for East Asia which I'm sure there was a lot of interest in the mm -hmm. policy community in what was happening. Um, what was that shift like, just career-wise, from going from being on Capitol Hill for many years to being part of the executive branch, albeit in a kind of briefing uh, intelligence community analyst role? Um, I made that move in uh, the summer of 1995 after Lee dong visit. Um, I had had a good bit of interaction with the intelligence community because Congressman Solars and Congressman Hamilton, for whom I worked after that, were um, frequent consumers. And so I knew people uh, who did China and Taiwan and other things um, in the CIA. Um, it was um, quite a culture shock, uh, moving from the most open part of our government to the most closed. Um, I was very impressed with the professional dedication of all the analysts and others that I worked with. Um, and I learned a lot from them, um, not only on subjects that I didn't know much about, like North Korea, but also on subjects that I didn't know, get, uh, know about. And so uh, these people were a great resource for me in the interactions I had um, with uh, policymakers. The next step of your career that I'd really be fascinated to hear about is you're moving over to become the chairman of AIT. And you talked a little bit before about kind of what AIT is mm -hmm. and what it does. Uh, but can you just kind of describe what that organization is and then what your role was in that? Um, I said before that we had made a pledge to the People's Republic of China uh, at the time that we established diplomatic relations that we would have unofficial relations with Taiwan. That required the creation um, of uh, an organization that was non-governmental, um, but to which American um, officials um, could be detailed or reassigned um, so that they could do um, whatever their job was um, um, with respect to Taiwan. Um, in this organization. The um, AIT in Taiwan essentially does the work of an embassy in another country, and it has uh, um, representation uh, from a variety of U.S. agencies. The Washington office of AIT, um, uh, of which I was the head, 
um, serves an administrative function um, working with the State Department and uh, the big office in Taipei. Um, I was also a member of the policy team here in Washington, um, participating in, in discussions on all kinds of issues. Um, I was the most senior person associated with the U.S. government who went to Taiwan, gave speeches about U.S.-Taiwan policy. I offered um, sort of my advice on uh, how um, we should adapt and adjust to the political situation in Taiwan um, and um, prepare for contingencies. Um, one of the things that was going on when I started um, for at AIT in 1997 was the run-up to the 2000 election. And You're um, talking about the election in, in Taiwan. Taiwan. The presidential election in Taiwan, sorry. And um, you know, there was a possibility that the candidate of the Democratic Progressive Party, who was likely to be Chen Shui-bian, uh, who had been mayor of Taipei, the capital city, um, that that he might actually become president. And uh, that would be a big change for the United States uh, and for China, uh, which viewed the Democratic Progressive Party as, as promoting Taiwan independence and therefore anathema. Um, and the m a lot of the work in preparing uh, the U.S. government for this possible transition was done by our office in Taipei um, building up communications links to Mr. Chen and to the people around him. Um, but um, it was also um, something that happened here in Washington as well. And we facilitated two visits by Chen Shui-bian to Washington in the spring of 1998 and spring of 1999 so that he could hear directly from U.S. policymakers their view of Taiwan, its relationship with China, its relationship to the United States. And do you think that had an effect on his policies once he was, not to spoil the end, but once he was elected, <laughs> do you think that, that those introductory visits here and discussion of U.S. policy interests had an effect on where Taiwan policy ended up? Um, I think it did. It did for a while. Um, there was a feeling in the Clinton administration that actually Chen Shui-bian might be a good interlocutor for China um, because he could speak for um, the Taiwanese majority. Uh, and rather like Richard Nixon was able to do the deal with China um, because he spoke for conservatives who had been anti-communists. Um, Chen Shui-bian stuck to uh, basically a middle moderate path for a couple of years, um, he was hoping, among other things, that um, China would be willing to engage him and um, work out uh, some kind of relationship of coexistence between the two sides of the strait. Um, China was not willing to do that. And do you think that was um, a missed opportunity on the mainland's part? Or do you, you just think kind of ideologically and intellectually and emotionally they just couldn't bring themselves to deal with someone like uh, well, all of that is true, but it was still a missed opportunity. <laughs> um, you know, they have an obligation to adjust to reality as well as anybody else. Mm -hmm. So, um, summer of 2002, Chen Shui-bian decides to move in a different direction, that he's not going to be uh, to uh, position himself in the middle of the political spectrum. He's going to play to his base um, and if that uh, involves hints that he's moving towards independence and uh, provocative uh, actions vis-a-vis -vis China, that's good. Just stepping back some, why, uh, and it's fascinating that the, a two-year window of kind of moderation happened, but from the mainland's point of view, from China's point of view, why is independence and moving Taiwan away so sensitive and so important for mainland leaders? From the day it was established, um, the government of the People's Republic of China has believed that uh, the territory of Taiwan is within the sovereign territory of China. Uh, it had been um, taken away um, by Japan, um, and in the Chinese view, it was returned 
1945. Uh, that happened also to be the view of the Republic of China Guomindang view in Taiwan um, uh, until Li Donghui came along. And so the idea that Taiwan could be a separate country, which is what some in the DPP wanted, um, was uh, a challenge to their fundamental interests. And um, Chinese like to draw the comparison between um, their situation in the American Civil War, that uh, um, independence people on Taiwan are like um, um, Robert E. Lee and, uh, and so on, and they're Abraham Lincoln. And so we should be sympathetic with their situation. Um, so the the period from 2002 to 2008, uh, when Mr. Chen left office, was a rocky time. Um, the communication between our two sides wasn't great um, because we basically disagreed with the political and policy course that Chen was taking. Um, um, China um, was also um, very concerned about the direction. And there was to an, ex an extent that um, the United States and China um, operated on parallel but similar tracks to deal with this situation. It wasn't a situation where we conspired with China to deal with this, but w uh, our interests were similar, and we each acted in somewhat similar ways to deal with it. And the U.S. interest in this case was what regarding Chen Shui-bian? Um, we have said um, for decades that our abiding interest concerning Taiwan is peace and stability in the Taiwan area and a belief that um, the differences between the two sides should be resolved peacefully, um, a belief that neither side should change the status quo unilaterally. Um, we don't want China to use force against Taiwan, but Neither do we want Taiwan to engage in um, highly provocative actions that challenge China's fundamental interests and may lead China to decide that the only way to protect its interests is to use force. And you think those interests haven't really changed much in no. the last no. how many decades? Several several decades? Um, this started in the 1950s. There has been a... a addition to that, and that is the idea that the differences between the two sides should be resolved not only peacefully but in a manner that's acceptable to people on Taiwan. I think this is just a statement of reality. It's a democratic system, so if you don't do it in a manner acceptable to Taiwan, it's not going to happen. But um, you know, that is a little too populist for Beijing, I think. And uh, on the Beijing side, they uh, had a tough time dealing with Chen Shui-bian, couldn't kind of figure out a policy that made sense. It was a lost opportunity, really, for a lot of those years. Uh, where, where do you think they are now in kind of dealing with Taiwan? Uh, and on the U.S. side, going forward, what do you think are principles should be as the, there'll be shifts in both in both Beijing and Taipei? Um, the good years for the People's Republic of China were 2008 to 2016. Uh, that was when uh, the leader of the uh, KMT, Ma Ying-jeou, was president. And his strong belief was that the way to protect Taiwan's interests across the board was to engage China, um, particularly in the economic area, um, but that uh, China uh, would be less likely to engage in coercive behavior against Taiwan if um, it was getting something out of the relationship and, and Taiwan wasn't challenging its interests. Um, that worked for a while, uh, but then uh, sentiment grew in Taiwan that um, Taiwan was growing too close to China, it was uh, becoming too economically dependent on China and so that uh, a line had to be drawn. There were other sort of political problems going on, but um, the result in the 2016 Taiwan presidential elections was um, a sharp defeat for the person um, <coughs> seeking to be Ma Ying-jeou's successor, 
and the election of um, Tsai Ing-wen, um, the leader of the DPP, uh, and a former official in the Chen Shui-bian uh, government, and uh, an advisor to Li Dengwei before that. Uh, it's somebody whom they believe, China believes, is intent on making Taiwan a separate country, whether she is or not. Um, and so they have uh, taken a um, rather tough approach to her. Uh, since she became president, um, setting a rather high bar for uh, any kind of engagement or coexistence, um, taking a bunch of measures to, in a way, punish her, punish Taiwan. Um, and so that's, that's where we are. Um, I think that uh, you know, some in China might say that the soft approach that China took from around 2005 on has failed and maybe a different, harder approach um, is necessary. Um, so far, the U.S. government, both the Obama administration and the, um, the Trump administration, um, believe that President Tsai has operated in a very moderate and cautious way, despite political pressures that she do something else. Um, it believes that um, she's not trying to change the status quo unilaterally. Um, it objects to China's various measures to punish her and uh, punish Taiwan. Um, and so we're in a situation, you know, not the same as 20 years before, but it, it has the same kind of tensions, um, the same kind of risk that it might spin out of control. Um, what's better, at least, is that um, Tsai Ing-wen understands very clearly um, the need to have good relationship with the United States and to keep the United States informed of everything she's going to do. And so, so far, she's been successful. And, and do you think the mainland learned any lessons from Chen Shui-bian that will be helpful, or do you think they're caught in some ways in their own prism of how they view Taiwan, that they, they, won't, be, they won't learn anything from say, the Taiwan Missile Crisis or, or other other historical events that over the last 20 years in which they've gained a fair amount of experience? I think the lesson they learned from the Chen Shui-bian period is that we, China, can outlast mm -hmm. this troublemaker, mm -hmm. uh, that we have enough tools uh, to restrict and deter. Um, you know, if we're lucky, we can get the United States to help us, but... Um, Basically, we're more powerful than, than Taiwan is, and uh, so we can contain this situation and uh, hope uh, that another more friendly Taiwan president is elected at some future time. Um, and the trend lines the be people in Beijing feel like are in their, in their favor. Um, do you think if that changes, does that change the Chinese calculus if they feel like they can't wait out or there is some uh, reason where they feel like things are not really going their way? Well, uh, two parts to the answer. First of all, um, there's going to be a local election on November 24th, and I don't know what the results of that were going will be, but uh, depending on what the results are, um, China may conclude that the political tide is swinging back toward its interests, swinging away from the DPP, and so our our um, strategy of playing for time and exerting pressure has worked. By ours, you mean the PRCs? Yes. At the same time, there's probably a realization that Ma Ying-jeou was perhaps the best Taiwan president they were ever going to get, and they didn't get from him everything that they wanted. And um, under Ma, the evolution towards um, political reconciliation and even unification didn't go very far at all. Ma had one advantage that future leaders of the Kuomintang probably won't have, and that was that he was a mainlander. They felt simpatico with him and his view of, of China writ large. Um, it's more likely that the future leader of the Kuomintang 
a future Guomindang president of Taiwan will be a Taiwanese. Meaning that their family wouldn't have come from mainland China in 1948-49. Yes. And so they'll have that struggle to deal with with a leader who's not doesn't have those ties to the mainland, right. mind you. And there'll be a suspicion that even though they're KMT, uh, that they may really be Taiwan independents in their hearts. Yeah, yeah. Well, look at Li Dengwei. He was president uh, under a KMT regime, uh, but as a Taiwanese, he, in their view, tried to take it in a direction that was incompatible with their own. I, I'd just like to end asking, given the... Um, PRC leadership these days under Xi Jinping in which there's a kind of narrowed area for research and for scholars and for kind of understanding the United States and, and, and a, a range of things. How do you think the current uh, administration in China and uh, kind of narrowing of the academic space affects the way the mainland deals with Taiwan or, or with the United States regarding Taiwan? Um, since the early 1980s, China has developed a um, really good cadre of people who understand Taiwan politics, Taiwan economy, Taiwan society, and, and Taiwan history. Uh, they're not perfect in their conclusions. Uh, there are some things they understand better than others, uh, but they do um, have the expertise that is useful to PRC leaders if the PRC leaders are prepared to use it. And under Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, there were institutional arrangements that where um, expert opinion could get to the leaders and shape to some extent the decisions that were made. My impression of the relationship between Xi Jinping and the expert community is that a lot less expert information is flowing up and uh, Xi Jinping sets the tone for what people have to say. And that is a somewhat dangerous situation because it leads to misperception, it leads to miscalculation, it creates a bubble around the leader. Um, not a good situation. Well, Richard Bush, thanks again so much. Um, great to hear about your amazing career uh, in Washington and, and spending all this time working on East Asia. Really appreciate it. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Richard Bush speaking with me from Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue Podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green.